Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Pastor Jeff Stewart. We all share the mode of existence of temporary life on this earth. And there are times when we work, and there are times when we don't work, or we don't go to school. There are times of leisure. And sometimes we have to find things that occupy our time. Well, I grew up, <clears throat> we found many ways of occupying our time when there was a time of, of leisure. And one of which was the many and various forms of games that you could play with these things. These are cards. There's, there's 52 cards here. There's 13 suits. I mean, there's, no, there's four suits, 13 in each suit, right? So that's why I wasn't very good growing up. But I also learned, as I became a Christ follower, that some people didn't do this because they thought it was evil. And I, it took me a little bit aback when I first learned that. I didn't realize somebody said, there's a history here that goes back to such and such. We just played with them. We just played games with them. We played Go Fish. We played Crazy Ace. We played Old Maid. We played Spoons. Everyone ever play Spoons with them? That, that's not a strategy game. It's kind of a game of luck. You've got to be fast to see, you know, you grab that spoon. We, we had all kinds of fun with this. And then we learned some strategy games, like poker or hearts or spades. And, and every game that I ever played, you know, growing up, when you would get your cards, you would kind of hold them like this because you didn't want anybody to know what you had. There's all kinds of variations that you can have with cards. And your opponent has a set as well. And whatever they have can determine the outcome of the game. You want to win. My mom was very notorious, very competitive person. So I learned that from her as well. Uh, last Friday, Tina and I went to the Brazils and we played spades. I'm teaching Tina how to play the game of spades. And she's getting it. She's getting it. She's coming along pretty well. But there's a lot of strategies in, involved with that as well. And every game that I've ever known that you play with cards, what you try to do is you have knowledge of what you have, but you don't have knowledge of what the other person has. And so there's sort of a suspension for a while as you go along in the game and things come out and they're revealed along the way and knowledge is gained. But there are times where you can say, like, I don't know if you've ever seen on television poker, these, all these, uh, cha- these channels would have these poker games that were on there. Somebody might be holding a king and nothing else and somebody would have two threes. Now, who's going to win that hand? Who's going to win that hand? Do you think it's going to be the two threes? Not always. A person can what? Bluff, can't they? Because the person doesn't have knowledge of what the other person has. They're suspended. They don't know. And sometimes the game is lost when you had a greater hand. Well, what I want to talk about the next, the next several weeks, we're starting the series called Dealing with Doubt. No pun intended. Dealing with Doubt. That's something in life that we have because we have the capacity of knowing. And we also have the capacity of not knowing, of being suspended almost like in a game where things reveal themselves along the way and you're not certain of what to do with that information. God has made us wonderfully, that we have the capacity to know. But there are times where we don't know what to do with the knowledge that we have. We are suspended. But we, and so we also doubt. There's a lot of doubt that takes place in our lives and takes place in every person's life. Doubt is something that is, that is, is not uncommon. We are conditioned to doubt. We are conditioned to doubt because we are capable of knowing. God has made us wonderfully. We can transcend beyond ourselves. But there's a limit to it. 
So we are often finding ourselves doubting because we are capable of knowing. It works two ways. It works from things that we don't know, and it works from things that we do know. And sometimes we butt heads on agreeing whether or not our knowledge is legitimate or not. The world out there is full of doubters because of the capability of knowing. Uh, recently, the uh, Red Hot Chili Peppers came out with a song called Snow. And there's a line in there that goes something like this. The more I see, the less I know. That's doubt. The more I like to let it go. That's knowledge and doubt working together. We see on the news shows all kinds of debates about hot-button issues. And there's knowledge and doubt among those things. We could engage in a conversation now about some of those hot-button issues. But we won't do it in here. Maybe we could do it in the parking lot. Talk about things like global warming. Is it there or is it not? There's all kinds of evidence that people say there is. There are also some scientists who, who used to think that there was global warming that don't anymore. It, there is no really big resolution on this, but people are debating it. There's also other things like the war in Iraq or uh, illegal immigration. There's knowledge. There's doubt. We did a little baseball theme up here this morning. I, I learned... Um, almost uh, with a harm to my body that there is a little bit of controversy about whether people agree about Barry Bonds or not. And so uh, I, I, you know, I'm okay now. I have a little limp left over from offering my opinion on that. And you Giant fans, you know, you're, you're rooting for Barry to break the record. I'm rooting for him to break something else. <laughs> but there's controversy there. She's with me. Yeah, sister. <laughs> There's controversy there because there's knowledge or there isn't knowledge. Did he? Did he not? Uh, we, you know, I'm just kind of suspending it out there. We're not going to use the word. But we know what we're talking about. It's suspended, isn't it? We don't know or we do know. That's what we have to deal with in life. It's a common human thing for us to know and not know. It should not be a shock to you, but followers of Christ do doubt. They do doubt. You think we wouldn't because we follow Jesus Christ, the truth and the way and the life, but we do doubt. We often are suspended. I know that because I've been a pastor for 25 years and I've had people come to me and say that they doubt often. They don't know what to do with the doubt because they're often judged based on that doubt. Or they may read something in here that makes them think that's not legitimate. But there are forms of doubt that are legitimate and there's some that are not, that are registered in God's Word. It is in God's Word. And we see right off the bat that it happens. If you go to the Bible for the very first time, you're introduced to the character of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist is this fiery guy. He's wearing all this strange clothing, and, uh, and he eats. So he has a crazy diet, like wild locusts and honey. And, you know, it's just almost like the survivor type, one of the survivor things. That guy was a survivor. And he has this confidence of, of saying, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And people are listening and people are being baptized. And he says, there's one uh, coming after me who I am not worthy to untie his sandals. And then he says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He points Jesus out. He calls the Pharisees, you brood of vipers, who told you to do this? And he's confident and he has all this knowledge. And he's a believer, right? But should he doubt? He doesn't think he would, but he goes to prison later. And we see in Matthew 11, 2 or 3, he second guesses himself. Even John the Baptist. He goes... When John heard in, in prison that what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, um, are you the one who was to come? Or, or should we expect someone else? 
That's what he says. He says that, and, and there's a moment of doubt. When I was on internship, I pastored two churches uh, the, between my second and third year of seminary. I pastored two churches down in the coal country in uh, Virginia, in the mountains. And there was this young man, there was a camp there. We were just talking about that this morning, sending kids to camp. There was a camp there where this kid went forward to receive Christ. And he was an amazing guy. He could play guitar real well, and he had kind of a sordid past, and he became a follower of Christ. And it was amazing to see this kid take, dig into God's word and be able to decipher things and, and bring things out in the clear at age 15, 14 or 15. He calls me one night, kind of late. He said, I need to talk to you. I said, what's the matter? He says, I'm having doubts. I said, well, come on over and we'll talk about it. And he said, someone told me it's wrong to doubt. There's something wrong with me that I should just believe and not doubt. It's in the Bible. Here, I'll show you. And, they, and he did all this. And he was really devastated by that. And, I, and I, I informed him that there's various forms of doubt. It's natural to doubt. It's something that takes place with every one of us because it's a p- process of our transformation. You see, doubt does not stop after one believes. It's actually part of the process that helps us believe. Doubt does not stop after one believes. I want you to write that down on your outline. It doesn't stop. It continues. Because of who we are. Uh, it takes on a new form, but it doesn't change. Os Guinness is, a, is a, a, a believer. And he's a guy that goes around and talks, is a motivational speaker to corporations and stuff. He said this in reference to doubt. He said, it is not primarily a Christian problem. It's a human problem. The root of doubt is not in our faith. It's in our humanness. That's a part of who we are. Now, C.S. Lewis, we've all heard of C.S. Lewis, haven't we? great writer who became, was an atheist who became a believer, he wrote in Mere Christianity these words. He says, now that I am a Christian, now that I am a Christian, I do have moods in which the whole thing looks very improbable. He's talking about the gospel. But he goes, but when I was an atheist, I had moods in which Christianity looked terribly probable. That's what got him into being a follower. It's a suspension. It continues and it doesn't stop after one believes. But there are legitimate forms and there are non-legitimate forms. We're stuck with the English. We hear the word doubt and we just think of one concept. And you know me, I like looking at the original languages. I found four concepts in the New Testament that have to do with doubt, two of which are normal and two of which are a little bit more severe. Four concepts in the New Testament. The first one is doubt can be wimping out, just merely wimping out, a basic of hesitation, a suspension, where you're just naturally inclined to just opt out of something. And we see an example of that in Jesus' words to Peter because Peter goes uh, as one of the guys in the boat where Jesus has this miracle of walking out on the water and he, they see him, they think he's a ghost, and then Peter, they all realize it's Jesus. And Peter says, invite me to come out, Lord. He wants to test his faith. And so he beckons him to come out and he walks out on the water. Peter actually walks on the water for a little while and then... He goes, wait a minute, this, this is not supposed to happen. A human being can't do this. And he looks at the waves and he looks at the wind and he starts sinking. And Jesus grabs him and he says these words in Matthew 14, 31. He says, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? He's not scolding him and saying, you bad boy. Why did you do that? You could have come out here and shown your faith. What's the matter with you? He almost said, it's almost like he's saying, oh, you were so close. You were so close. You wimped out. Maybe some of you remember 
back in the old days, like I do, going to the swimming pool, and this dates me, they used to have two diving boards way, way back when. Remember the two diving boards? Maybe they don't have any anymore. Before liability went to Mars, they used to have a, a, a you know, a, like a one-meter board and then a three-meter board, the high dive. I remember as a kid, my parents encouraged me to, you know, go off the diving board, and I finally went off the one-meter thing, and then, well, it's time to go off the high dive. And I thought, well, no, I think I can do that until you get up there. <laughs> and all of a sudden, you know, it's only 10 feet, but you look down, and you oh, man, that's a long way down there. And you got people encouraging you that were standing in line behind you to go. Not because, you know, they are, are rooting for you. It's like they want to go. So you go and you learn, oh, it's not so bad. You had some doubt. You were suspended for a while, literally and figuratively. You didn't know. You had no knowledge of what was happening. And you, and you have this hesitation. And there are times, you know, after I learned that, that, you know, you see a little kid going up there for the first time and you're up on the ladder and they go, no, I'm not doing this. Excuse me, pardon me, pardon me, you know. And you're getting called wuss, chicken, all that stuff on the way down. That's what it is. It's pretty basic. It's a suspension. It's a hesitation. We all have that. There's all kinds of things that challenge us. And it's, that's okay. That's normal for us to do that. And Peter, we know, was, was the poster child for that. He uh, wimps out quite often in the Bible. But there, there's another form that's a little more natural that leads towards some things that are a little more severe. Doubt can also be an argument based on logic. We don't know about the logic part. That comes from the Greek word dialogismos. Last one, I didn't give you the word with distazo. That's simple. But dialogismos, what does that look like? Dialogue. That's what it is. We talk about things. And I, I mentioned a few hot button issues. They exist all the time among people. There are various opinions and, and the jury is out. And sometimes we change our minds about things. They happen with believers as well. Because everything that comes along that looks a little different than something we've done before, maybe a new model of ministry, it creates some energetic conversation. We haven't done this before. And I learned when I was in seminary, those were the seven last words of the church. We've never done it this way before. And we need to talk about that. Well, why are we doing it this time? Well, the New Testament had its share of the same thing. There was a change that was brought about when Jesus opened the, the uh, church up to everyone of all cultures. And the, the disciples along the way, Peter didn't, oh, this isn't, we hadn't done this way before. And Peter said, you know, he said in a vision, he says, it's not going to be that way anymore, Peter. It's going to change. And it had its share of change, and we're still having times of change. And there's a heads up for us when Jesus is dedicated to the temple, the little infant. As a little tiny infant, the word doubt is used. You may not see it that way, but, but here is Simeon, the old man, blessing Jesus. And in Luke 2, 35 and 36, it says, Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign will be spoken against, so that the thoughts... And the word in there is the dialogismus, the dialoguing. The thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. And he says to Mary, looking right at her, a sword will pierce your own soul too. You'll be challenged. And she was. We heard a few weeks ago about when Jesus was 12 and in the temple. They didn't understand that. It's not supposed to be this way. You see, for us as a church, as followers of Christ, Things change. I mean, look at you now. 20 years ago, you wouldn't be wearing Hawaiian shirts. You wouldn't be wearing flip-flops. 
But if you did 20 years ago, that would be a controversy. That would be something worth dialoguing about. We wouldn't have guitars and drums and stuff here 20, 30 years ago. But things happen along the way, and there's a little energetic conversation that takes, takes place. Right now, presently, there are followers of Christ disputing matters based on logic. Not really a faith, but on trying to think of We haven't done it this way before. It's a form of doubt on everyone's part. It's been happening for years. My f- first consideration of recognizing Christ as Lord came right around the end of the 60s and early 70s, back when the hippies were just going crazy. And there was a thing called the Jesus Revolution. These were hippie-looking people that were talking about Jesus, having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so they were the ones with the guitars and the drums and stuff. There was controversy about that. There was controversy even to the point where people dismissed it as heresy and a threat to the survival of Christianity. Well, we're here, aren't we? We made it, didn't we? People said that back then. This is going to threaten the church. This is a culture you know, that, that was, a, was very, very threatening because it was a worldly culture. And there was the gospel applied to worldly matters. And stirred matters, and the result was changed in the early church as well. They had these dietary disciplines that were disputable. They had meat offered to idols that were disputable. But the church survived. And Paul addresses that in various forms of doubt in the whole chapter of Romans 14. And you should read that if you want to read about doubt. He starts out with this dialoguing type in verse 1. He says, Accept him whose faith is weak without <clears throat> passing judgment on disputable, doubtful, dialoguing, dialogismus matters. Without passing judgment. There's so many things to consider. And when we consider things, sometimes we have an opinion on them, whether we're pro or, or, or anti, or sometimes we're still just considering them. We're in this process. I sometimes identify with Tevya and uh, Fiddler on the Roof. I don't know if you've ever seen Fiddler on the Roof. He's one of my favorite theologians because he goes toe-to-toe with God, and he's learning all along the way about the traditions and stuff. And early in one of the scenes, these guys are talking about the political climate of how the czar are coming and taking the towns and ravaging them and just chasing people out. And the guy says, look, this is bad. And one of the, one of the uh, people there, I think it's the innkeeper, says, why should I worry about the outside world? I got my own neck to worry about. And Tevye says, you're right. And then somebody on the revolutionary side says, you should be concerned about the outside world because it may come here. You need to think about that. And Tevye goes, you're right. And then the guy that's reading the newspaper says, wait a minute, you said he was right. You said he was right. How can they both be right? And Tevye says, you're right. <laughs> There's just so many things to consider because God has given us this ability to know. And we're suspended. We need to realize that we're always suspended in various forms of doubt. And Paul addresses this. And and talks about this thing because it's happening. It's rampant in the early church. It isn't a compromise so much as it is a recognition of the condition we have to doubt as we're capable of various forms of knowledge. There's a purpose. And I'm going to give that to you in a few minutes. Doubt can also be a suspension of faith. Sometimes we want to lump all forms of doubt into that. But it can be a suspension of faith. This is a kind of over-the-line, bringing attention to self type of standout, drawing attention. God's Word speaks harsh about this type of doubt. The most infamous example of that is a fellow that followed Jesus, one of the twelve, by the name of Thomas. And what do we know Thomas for? What do we call him? The doubter. One episode took place. 
Now think of Thomas's life. He follows Jesus. He sees all the miracles. He believes. He's operating by the mode of faith quite a bit. Feeding of the 5,000, well, he pulled that off. You know, the, the, the healing of the demoniac, well, he pulled that off. And even Lazarus, you know, he dies of natural causes. He raises him from death. Let me pull that off. But wait a minute. Here's Jesus with hands pierced through with nails and, and his feet. And somebody thrusts a spear in his slide. And as gruesome as it is, he sees blood and water flow out of him on the cross and just drag lifelessly into a, into a grave. And somebody says, he's alive. Oh, no, no, he's not. Ain't no way he's alive. If anyone's dead, he's dead. What happens? Jesus comes to him. He wants verification. And Jesus is saying, you don't need the verification here. He answers him in John 20, 27. Jesus said to Thomas, you want verification? Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach your hand into my side. Yuck. You want verification? That's what Jesus is saying to him. Stop doubting and believe. Now, what the word there is, apostos. It means no faith. None. Non-existent. Pistos means, means believe. And he's saying, he's saying to Thomas, no, no, not here. This is not the time. You need to believe. He says, may apostas ala pistos. Not unbelieving, but believing. This is the time to put knowledge aside and go with unyielding trust. And there is a threshold that we have to cross for that. Everyone in the world very often defaults to faith without verification. They don't realize it. Even the most antagonistic people who think that we're in here wasting our time. They default to faith without verification, don't they? You know how they do that? Just think of a common thing here. Just down the hill here, we have a freeway. It's 80. It goes all... The, I know where I've been all the way through 80. I know the west end and the east end. And along that road, today, people will perish, won't they? People will be killed. People on freeways and roads daily are killed. Every person who doesn't believe that knows that it's true. So do they need verification to know that they may be a one of the victims? That, that, that they will get on the on-ramp and they won't be the, one of the ones? Every one of us do that. And it, the most antagonistic person gets in their car, goes down the ramp, and gets on the freeway. They can't verify that they won't be a victim. They just believe they won't. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's time to put this knowledge and verification aside at this point. And there's a point where it's not legitimate to doubt. And that's what he's talking about. He's pretty harsh with that. Everyone in the world does that. We put knowledge aside and we bank on unverifiable trust. That's what Jesus tells Thomas. And it relates to us as well. The most severe form of doubt is one that can be antagonistic ridicule. That is the most severe, one that has the most pride to it, one that says, you know, I know what's going on and you don't. That's diachrono. And it's a very harsh word. It's almost like a death word. It's driven by insolent pride. We can be easily tempted to point a self-righteous judgmental finger at the world and say that they suffer from this. Right now there's a, a book, uh, I'm going to say a BS book because it means bestseller, by Richard Dawkins, called The God Delusion. We're guilty right now, The God Delusion. And he puts in there how we've gone astray with wasting our time and believing in a God. 
There's also another guy that has made the news lately by the name of Christopher Hitchens. He was very, very animate about the death of Jerry Falwell and said he was glad that it happened. He wrote a book called God is Not Great. And we could easily point to those people and say, they are full of pride. They are full of antagonistic ridicule. They doubt. They're wrong. We're right. But that's what Paul is saying. What The last part of that is the part that is equally wrong. That we would condescend to the same type of ridicule and antagonism as the world. The problem in the early church was a thing called Gnosticism. And you today would call it know-it-allism. Today we'd call it that. In Romans 14, again, Paul didn't want believers to reciprocate a condescending perspective on what was allowable as a follower of Christ and what wasn't because people were disputing about it. Remember what he said? Don't differ on disputable matters. But people carried a little bit further and say, I'm right on this and you're wrong. He said to accept those whose faith is easily disrupted without passing judgment on disputable matters, but it can deteriorate to antagonism. And this is what he says in verses 22 and 23 of uh, Romans. I I think I had Luke down. So whatever you believe about these things, meat offered idols, whatever they were, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the man who does not condemn himself by what he approves, but the man who has doubts, this agitating ridicule, is condemned if he eats because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. It goes against the various expressions of faith. There are various expressions of faith. I know that because the more people I meet here, they come from different backgrounds. There are those who would consider this is evil. And I take it, you know, I'm taking a risk by, by showing this. And there are those who go, what's, what's the deal with that? All kinds of backgrounds here, various expressions of faith. And people do things out of faith. And if you ridicule things that you know are not re- relegated to faith, you are the one that is wrong, not they. Paul says, we know that an idol isn't anything. It's just Material, that's all it is. But he said, not everyone knows this. They go by the context of their faith and their commitment. I'll give you an example. Uh, when Tina and I were, were first married, we listened to Christian music that kind of had a, an American bandstand uh, quality to it. It's got a good beat and you can dance to it. <laughs> it's just, you know, this kind. And it, it, it was new at that time. But it was also... Controversial. We were listening to some of that music, and one of her relatives, hearing some of it we were listening to, informed us, this is the next fellow follower of Christ, said, that's sacrilege. That's what they said to us. We said, wow. And we said to each other, maybe it is. We shouldn't listen to this anymore. No, we didn't do that. We didn't do that. We said, you're wrong. This is what needs to be done today to draw people to Christ. I know people who are on drugs have been drawn to Christ because they heard this music and they listened to the message. You're wrong. No, I'm not. That's against, that shouldn't be done in church, blah, 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 among Christians. And we went back and forth with that. And that's what Paul is talking about. This doubt, which is trumping other doubt. I don't know that. This person doesn't know that. And so that is what he's talking about. We trump doubt. With doubt, we have this antagonistic ridicule. We have this pride and this fire that says, we're right about this and you're wrong. And you think God would denounce this as detestable, this kind of doubt? He, he doesn't. He just says, don't do it. He says in Jude one twenty two these words, be merciful to those who have this kind of doubt. That word there is this diachronal, this antagonistic ridicule. Have mercy on those. Why? Why would he say that? 
It seems so harsh. There is this suspension. There is this perspective that we don't know as much as we do know. So the question is, how much can we know? How much can we know? There's a lot of information out there. There's a lot of things being discovered that we didn't know were still out there. How much can we know? Well, according to God's word, not a whole lot. We aren't capable of taking down information and doing things with it. We're capable of going up to the delta and trying to chase a couple of whales back to the ocean. We're we're able to transcend beyond our own existence and see those whales are lost. Let's get them back. But there's still a lot we don't know. Why are they still up there? Why are they still up there? We can't figure it out. Are you familiar with the whales? You're all looking at me like I have three eyes. (laughs) They're up in the delta. There are people, thousands of people are going to see these whales. They're stuck. Why is it that we know, but how much can we know? Not much. In perspective, listen to 1 Corinthians 13, 9. Now, our knowledge is partial and incomplete. It just skims the surface. Even the gift of prophecy that can look ahead is only a part of the whole picture. There's a big picture. It's God's picture. But this is more important. 1 Corinthians 8, 1 through 3. Paul says, we all know we possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up. It doesn't do a whole lot of good. But love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know. But the man who loves God is known by God. The result has a purpose. And this is what I believe it is. Doubt generates humility. And the purpose of that is so we can build a bridge to the world. Doubt should generate humility so that we can have a bridge sustained to the world because the world out there is trying to discover as much meaning to life as they can. There's an illustration of this, and I can't do better than one of our own. Debbie's Trezen. I'd like for her to come up and share her story about her, how her mom is considering the God that we worship today. Good morning. Aloha. Um, before I read this, um, for those of you that don't know, my family back home, my mom and my family, were involved in a horrible fire. The whole house went up between 8 and 10 seconds, and they lost everything. And you guys, the church, my church family, my small group, were kind enough to, with prayers, donations, gift cards, it really helped her, and I want to say thank you. My mom is loving, she's caring, she's kind. She's the strongest woman I know. She's also very sarcastic and an atheist. And um, she always had a lot of doubt, so she never had any real peace because she doesn't know faith. But uh, maybe I have a surprise for you guys, so I'd like to read her letter. Dear all, I have found it extremely hard to write this thank you. Words did not come easy. Hopefully, I have chosen them well so you can understand how much hope your kindness has brought to us. The generosity that was shown to my family stunned me. I literally did not know how to react. People I have never met extending so much compassion. How? When does this happen? What was going on? How can they care about us? My heart was not prepared for this incredible act of kindness. Now, I don't mind telling you all that Debbie and I have been going at it, so to speak, about her God for as long as I can remember. That brat had an answer for everything. I was... (laughs) I was an atheist, and my mom started taking her to church and helped her find her faith when she was a little girl. And always, no matter what, they just believed. Really annoying at times. 
but such is life, and we moved on. Having said that, I want to say this fire scared the living hell out of me. I kept asking myself, what if I did not wake up when I did? What if my daughter, my grandson, and my brother had died? What did we do that a maniac would want to hurt us like that? Where was your God? I asked Debbie. As she was crying, holding my hand, and thanking God we were okay. She replied, my God was waking you up. You didn't die because Jesus loves you. Who do you think blessed me by saving you? Okay, I said, so why did that fire happen in the first place? That brat, and you all know who I'm talking about, softly answered, only God can answer that. He's kicking your door down. Open your heart. Ask him yourself. I have noticed many things the last several weeks. There are people that care about others, and a good majority of them attend Northgate Church. There are others that make my problems seem minimal. Yes, I am lucky. I can still hug my loved ones. My oldest daughter has a home in California with people that love her, and guess what? The majority of them attend that Northgate Church. It must be a very special place. In the world that I have lived in, people took care of themselves and no one else. When you were alone, that was it. You were alone. Faith was a pretty word with no foundation for me. I now see each day as a brand new beginning to be treated as a precious gift. I am humbled and grateful for all of you, for your generosity, for your care of my daughter, and for the hope you have extended because of your giving hearts. I am smart enough to know I can never repay what you have given. With all that you have done, a thank you letter seems silly. And it's not enough, so I will say this. I will have a talk with God and ask him to bless you all and keep you safe. And as long as I'm having that talk with God, maybe we can, he can answer all the questions I've had about faith. And maybe the woman writing this letter can put her atheist days behind her. And wouldn't it be great if that brat was right all along? <laughs> with love and appreciation, Mimi. What a great way of bringing that home. You see how doubt generated some humility. You see how it turned toward faith. You said, I never considered faith. You were on your own. And that she thought that way. Never even considered talking to God. And then all these things happened. Why they happened? I don't know why they happened. Pondering more and more. And she says, I'm going to have a talk with that God. Never even considered. She put verification aside to trust it's the beginning of the transformation of her life. It's the beginning of the transformation of everyone that God is trying to reach. Don't be fooled by those who are antagonistic toward us. Love is what breaks through. We can say all we want and verify and prove all the stuff that is in here if we, if we have the means of doing it. It just doesn't break through as love. That's why Jesus came. It's in the form that he came. Let's bow for prayer. Lord, your word is clear in telling us that we need to be merciful to those who doubt. And you understand that because you made us in a very intricate way. You also see that we have the freedom to uh, even question your existence. But I pray, Lord, that through us, as you have chosen to work through us, that the merciful acts and that the love that would build up would be something more of a force than any person could be able to gain by their own knowledge or something that just seems to be one that could fortify the means and the reason of why we exist. I pray, Lord, that we will be 
humans that will be humble and that we will sustain a bridge to the world that you love, Lord, knowing that this doubt is something that can lead toward transformation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Benicia, California.